Hello everyone, I am Steph Bodrini and this podcast is for everyone who wants to learn commercial real estate investing from A to Z. I'll be sharing with you my daily journey in getting into real estate while being mentored by someone who has been doing retail real estate investing for over 20 years. My goal is to keep things very straightforward because we don't have time to waste. With that, in the last episode, we went over part three of my first offer. We covered the construction costs, the financial calculations for all three options that we had in mind, as well as what was our final decision and the conclusion about the entire process. Today, we have a very special interview with a broker that has been focused on retail properties. He has been selling, helping buyers with retail properties, as well as leasing them to big tenants for over 15 years. Here we go. Today, we're interviewing James Shang. He is the uh, executive managing director and managing principal for the Western U.S. for Cushman and Wakefield's retail platform. He has been with the company for 15 years and has represented over 30 national tenants and over 9 million square feet of retail across the Bay Area here in Silicon Valley. James, you have an impressive client list, like AT&T, Chase, Adidas, In-N-Out, Sur La Table. Obviously, you're not only helping national tenants find space, but you're also listing retail properties for lease. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about your background with our listeners? No, but appreciate the the warm introduction. Uh, Excited to be here. As far as my involvement, both with the company and in the industry. I've also served as a state director for ICSE, which is um, the largest retail organization within the industry, and also very involved with uh, other organizations like ULI, but, uh, but excited to be here. Awesome. Thank awesome. you so much. And because there's such a wealth of information and so relevant to our podcast, I would like to break this conversation into two podcasts. First, it'll be on the listing side, and then we can talk about your work on finding space for national tenants. But before we start with either of those, I would love to understand your thoughts on where you think retail real estate is going uh, and what the future is going to look like. Sure. Uh, you know, the crystal ball is always a question yeah. <laughs> you get asked to look into. And it's one that unfortunately is, is, is speculative, but at the, at the end of the day, there, there definitely has been a, you know, nationally a softening in the retail environment. There's been a, I think a gradual shift over the last 24, 36 months in the types of transactions that are happening on the retail front, whether that's downsizing or call it right sizing. Sometimes there's been some creative repurposing outside of retail with a lot of what we've seen in B and C class malls. But overall, the overall health, I would say, is is in a good place. And I think change is always something that people are uh, allergic to, to, to wanting. And when they see it happening in front of them, I, I think it's that uncertainty and that unknown that often make people worry, but I I really feel that retail is going through somewhat of a metamorphosis where things are becoming more efficient. Obviously, the relationship even to the supply chain 
and the fulfillment side of the business is becoming ever more important, which is obviously connecting the brick and mortar to the e-commerce side. But while you know that was once seen as adversarial, I believe can can work in harmony, and I think when executed properly, the sky's the limit. Change is inevitable, <laughs> and hopefully, it is going to be for the best, regardless. Okay, so let's jump on listing retail properties for lease, uh, and let's focus on that for the next couple of questions. When you're putting a retail space up for lease, what are the factors that help you decide what the price per square feet should be when you're leasing that space? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, when we when we first take on an asset, uh, whether it's ground up or existing, obviously we need to understand uh, the existing health of the shopping center. And, and one way we do that is through uh, understanding the health ratios of the tenant. And the health ratio is the relationship between gross sales and total occupancy cost. And so when we, we can go through by tenant by tenant and understand if they're, the rent they're paying is equitable to the sales uh, performance. The challenge with pricing is that geography will often dictate pricing. However, you could have a an asset next door to you with call it half the rent and part of it is you know co-tenancy part of it is how updated the center is part of it is who anchors the center the access to the center so there's a lot of variables that that will dictate the market uh rent or at least the asking rent and uh oftentimes geography doesn't necessarily dictate that number and retail is not commoditized that way where you can say by by virtue of being on this block or that block, you know, you, your rent should be X or, or like when call it when you're getting comps for home sales and a price per square foot. Yes. Does it give you an indication within call it, you know, uh, 10 to 20 to 30 percent of where things could be. But, you know, block by block, things change just very dramatically. When we first take on an asset as well, we also think about how to really optimize the merchandising strategy for the center. So what I mean by that is that are, are the tenants in place the highest and best uses for the positions they are in the shopping center? And so when digging into that exercise, really we take a much higher level look at lease expiration dates, you know, who's coming up when, who's healthy, who's not, and where we could really ultimately reposition tenants. And that sometimes means even moving them around in the center, uh, mm -hmm. again, to, to optimize the opportunity for, for the asset. Can you talk a little bit about TI and explain to our listeners what it is and how it's negotiated typically? Sure. So uh, tenant improvement allowance is, is a funny item because there's really no rule of thumb per mm -hmm. se. Um, in ground-up development, what ends up happening is we will typically have a certain delivery condition that we will provide to the tenant and then earmark cash for the tenant to ultimately finish the space. So what I mean by that is we'd like to deliver a shell condition that may usually not include a restroom, typically no drywall. We will often bring the utilities to the space but not distribute them. And the reason we do that is because tenants are so specific in their build-outs that um, they'll often come in and end up ripping out pretty much everything you do to their own spec. So we want to save that money, earmark that cash, and, and, and give that to the tenant for their build-out. Now, when you have existing space, it really all depends on the 
call it financial position of the owner. So is the owner in a place where they have cash, can underwrite those dollars to the tenant that ultimately get call it depreciated through you know, the primary term, are they willing to, to write that check to the tenant to help them get going? Because there's obviously risk, right? If the tenant mm-hmm. does not does not succeed, there's obviously just the cost of capital in general. And also, the again, the financial position of the landlord. Now, when you're working with institutional landlords, many of which we represent, there's obviously a lot more cash earmarked. But then if you're working with a local private owner who may not be able to write a, a huge check, there's often a, a push and a pull as it relates to the base rent. So a lot of time that capital is amortized at a money factor, again, really underwritten like a loan. I mm-hmm. misspoke earlier by saying depreciating because the, the capital improvements are into the space are depreciated, not the TI, but the TI is amortized, again, at a money factor like you would uh, another, any kind of loan. So just to clarify on the national tenant, typically it's a bit riskier to give TI to smaller uh, mom and pop shops versus national tenants, they may be able to just do their own improvements and negotiate a lower lease. Potentially, yes. Okay. Uh, not always. That's not always the case, but it is often the case. So, okay. but there's also oftentimes too, like when negotiating with you know large institutional banks, you know their their cost of capital is cheaper than anyone's, so they don't want any TI. Okay. They'd rather pay lower. They'd rather, they'd rather pay lower base rent. They'll deal with everything themselves. Onward and upward you go, and then and then you're dealing sometimes with restaurants, which often require the most TI. We're finding restaurants and fitness concepts require the most TI, and it's um, it's challenging because you know when dealing with these types of transactions, and you're you're providing call it fifty to one hundred fifty dollars a foot in TI over call it anywhere from five to call it eighty thousand square feet. I mean that, that, that's a that's a very large check, and those checks are typically given. So they're, they're not used to finance the deal. They're typically given after the tenants receive their certificate of occupancy and all the liens have been released. So there's, uh, it's really not intended to be used to finance the project. Nowadays, what, what are good types of tenants to have in your center? Well, it, it, it depends on the opportunity. So if it's, a, if it's a neighborhood shopping center, the most coveted asset class would be a grocery anchor shopping center. So. Uh, one of the most uh, desirable investment opportunities for people, especially in the Bay Area, are grocery anchor centers in the retail space. So if you're serving, you know, if you're in, you know, any again, any any neighborhood or on a main arterial, there's a strong national tenant grocery that is the is the hub of the center with the spokes being the shop space. That is typically the most desirable, I would say. You know, following that, there's other asset classes, you know, like malls, there's lifestyle centers that are more soft goods centric, there's outlet centers. So there's really so many different types of, of shopping center environments. But if I had to pick one, I would probably say grocery anchored. From a real estate investor's perspective, what should we look for when purchasing a retail property? A geography is one. I think there's always a demand for all asset classes in, in places like the Bay Area where the fundamentals and the demographics are sound mm-hmm. and you have a lot of reasons to be here that will survive the ebb and flow of, of, of business cycles. But when you're getting uh, into the fundamentals of a shopping center, there, it really is driven by your purpose. So is your purpose to value add, reposition, create the lift and create the value and then obviously either enjoy that or, or sell it or is your purpose to 
have uh, you know basically fixed income and safe income where you have a lot of credit, good credit in a center uh, to be able to enjoy as well for whatever your typical hold period time is. So depending on what you're looking for, it'll, it will dictate the type of opportunities you'll be seeking. But again, I think as it relates to quality of investment, really it's, it's going to be credit-based. So depending on the value of the signature on, on the leases. Moving on to focusing on Silicon Valley as an example, how can we <laughs> make money in retail when the cap rates are so low in this market? What should they look for in a deal? Well, Silicon Valley, again, it's getting picked over every day of the week. And, and cap rates, low cap rates are actually aren't necessarily a bad thing if the income on the property is under market. Mm-hmm. So even if you're paying a three and a half cap on a deal, but you know, the rent is 50% of what it should be mm-hmm. then. But again, that's where the market intelligence comes into play and understanding, you know, how, how things are being underwritten. But yes, to, to your point, there is a compression of cap rates just by virtue of geography of being in Silicon Valley. Now, but there's still there there still are great opportunities out there. I mean, it's just uh, you may you may just not find them listed openly. But it's it's really about understanding how to unlock the value in whatever asset you are looking at because there are many ways to to skin the cat, if you will. And mm-hmm. oftentimes people are looking at it very one dimensionally when in fact there may be multiple ways to to create value. Can we dig a little bit deeper on on some of these ways besides obviously the rent being lower than market? Well, yeah, so um, a couple ways is one would be for example understanding the latitude of the land that mm-hmm. you're on. So it, it maybe retail isn't the highest and best use and maybe it's a large enough parcel where when you understand how high you can build there's a a considerable delta in what land value is for pure retail and what land value is for high density residential. Mm-hmm. So, and so there's potentially an, an entitlement play there where, yeah, maybe the retail on property is X, but you know, there, there's a, a, a strong multiple there for repositioning for high density residential. As I mentioned the previous way too, if yeah, you may be buying something at a low cap, maybe there's a two or three year carry, but again, you know, that the, value in three years even if at today's market rent that you know that three caps now at seven cap mm-hmm. or maybe there's a, a repositioning opportunity at a certain price but based on it being on you know x corner which is one of the best in Varia, knowing there's a large te- tenant coming in across the street and there's things happening down the road or you know bart's coming in and you have to understand that the whole landscape in order to really properly evaluate something because what may appear today is not going to be what appears two years from now and and having that knowledge is 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 the power from your experience what are the top things we should make sure to cover during the due diligence process before closing on a property and these may be things that people may not typically be thinking about that they have missed potentially and it, it came back to haunt them. Well, I think the top one is typically related to any hazardous materials mm-hmm. and or history of hazmats on property because that could ultimately undermine anything you know you could ever want to do. 
on a property. Um, I, I would say also understanding again, always making sure you're doing a full circle around a property, understanding all the latitude that you have with the opportunity going in. It's it's always good. And again, it's, it's hard to say because there's so many ways to buy a property because sometimes you're buying it on a speculative basis where maybe it's an empty property. You don't have somebody in tow or maybe there is somebody there. So there's just a lot of, you know, understanding if you're buying income, what that income really means, what it, what the signature is really worth, who's signing it. Is it a shell entity that is a, that is a single purpose entity only for this property? So despite it being a billion dollar company, you know, the actual signature is actually not worth anything. So really investigating who has signed on the dollar line. I mean, those are some things to, to really uh, check off during the process. But again, depending on what you're buying and how you're buying it is really going to dictate uh, your due diligence process. If you are finding this podcast helpful in your real estate journey, make sure to subscribe. And if you could please do me a favor and leave us a review, that would be super helpful. I will see you next time.